Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring indigenous ecological knowledge. My guest is James Tunney, a poet, a novelist, an artist, an attorney who has lectured all over the world on international law. He is author of The Mystical Accord, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, Sutras to Suit Our Times, as well as The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. James has also written two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. He's based in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. I'm very happy to be with you once again. It's great to see you, as always, my friend. I'm looking forward to our conversation. We'll be talking about indigenous ecological knowledge, and I think a good starting point uh, would be to for you to talk about your background and your interest in this area. Our viewers by now have heard you talk about many, many different topics, and here yet again is a completely new one. <laughs> okay, so perhaps to establish a bit of credibility or not, Jeff. Um, well, first, there's two interests. There's a personal and a professional interest. My personal interest is that I've always been interested in plants. I've been interested in the Celtic use of plants, the history of plants, and also the wisdom that we can learn from other cultures, from India, from Ayurveda, from Chinese traditional medicine. And we see all around the world that there's an interest in plants and trees and how to use them. And even in art, a lot of the early colors where they came from plants and trees, or when they were using them in, in the books, they had to know where they came from. But uh, often people look at spectacular things like ayahuasca, and they forget the ordinary things around them. And take, for example, uh, dandelion. Uh, dandelion, or Taraxacum officinale, uh, is the, the Latin name, um, it comes from the French don de lion, the lion's tooth, and that gives you a clue uh, in both names, that it's more than just a weed as it's regarded. And we spend a lot of money getting rid of uh, getting rid of these weeds. Although, if you look back through history, uh, dandelion has a lot of medicines in it. As, as the weather is changing now, I'll go out in the garden and pick some uh, dandelions, and they're, they're very good for your liver and for a lot of other things. So the things that are all around us, I've, ex I've explored certain plants and how they can be used just as part of, of your normal diet. The Department of Health in America classified once dandelion as one of the, the top 10 uh, nutritious green plants. Um, but of, and in the Celtic tradition, we can see that there's a, a, long, a long history of reference to plants and to trees. The oak, the yew, for example, come up again in relation to the druids and and magic. So the connection with magic is very, very strong, as it is throughout European indigenous uh, culture in, in the context of natural magic. Uh, and even if we look at, you think of Simon and Garfunkel, their song, uh, Are You Going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Remember me to one who go, uh, lives there. She once was a true love of mine. Now, parsley, sage, rosemary and thyme have been proven to have a beneficial effect on the brain. It's very, very interesting. And if we take rosemary, for example, they've been studying rosemary in relation to a particular group of people in Italy who live near Salerno because they live very long. The longevity is fantastic and their brains are in good condition. And they're wondering whether the fact that they use a lot of rosemary is related to that. So, it's no surprise that they might know about the power of herbs because in the 11th century, we had a great medical school in Salerno. Uh, so we see this link between herbs and medicine and health and spirituality. And of course, in the context of spirituality, people like Hildegard of Bingen wrote a great 
uh, a book on herbalism, and we have that uh, tradition in in Europe going back to Dias uh, Corrides and other people uh, two thousand years ago. And the great doctors were herbalists. A lot of the monasteries were important in preserving medical knowledge as well. So I, I've been interested in, in in those things, and even in the Irish context, the link between plants. Uh, the potato famine destroyed uh, destroyed culture in, in Ireland, but the idea of the land and the soil and the connection between between the soil and land use and uh, plants is very very important. But in a professional context, the uh, the last time I talked publicly about this was a long time ago in Penn State University, and it was it was in the context of ethnobotany, and I had, for example, a opportunity to talk to Wade Davis and to listen to Wade Davis. Now, Wade Davis is a very interesting uh, character, an ethnobotanist, an explorer for National Geographic, uh, a very respected uh, person in this domain who coined terms such as the ethnosphere, for example. So we can think of the biosphere and, and the ethnosphere where people live and also other concepts that have come in, like the technosphere, to begin to think of the interaction of these forces. Now, Wade Davis is interesting, for example, because he's studied the phenomenon of zombies and he wrote the book The Serpent and the Rainbow. And he also was a protege of Richard Evans Schultes, who was in Harvard. And he was a great botanist who went down to the Amazon. He was there for 12 years. He saw people who had suffered as a result of, with scars from the, the rubber industry there, the rubber industry that Roger Casement the great uh, Dublin uh, explorer of human rights had uh, had talked about in his reports in the Amazon and on, in relation to Congo. So Schultes went down there to study a, a whole range of plants and discovered magic mushrooms down there. But of course, we have traditions of unbroken traditions of use of uh, uh, psilocybin uh, in 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 Europe in the, in the Celtic countries uh, and. It, it, there's a link as well, I believe, with certain uh, phenomenon. The, there's a slang name I see used for magic mushrooms called pookies, which is related to the, the word puka, I think, which, which we've discussed before and you've discussed, of course, in your great uh, uh, interviews with uh, Robert Anton Wilson uh, before. So, so the, and sometimes in Scotland... They talk about people who are not really there as being away with the fairies. So we have a little cross crossover there. But if we if we think about the fact that ethnobotanists may get credit for the origin of these things, we have to remember that it was the Native Americans in that context that discovered these uses. It was the Native Americans that had the genius in some way to put together two distinct plants in the context of ayahuasca the shrub and the vine, and to, to get them to interact in a very complex way that couldn't have been easily determined in a scientific way. And even when we look at other dimensions, of course, in the context, in the spectacular end of the herbal, the herbal domain in relation to, say, Huxley, and that idea of him being associated with the doors of perception and the use of mescaline, of course, and the psychedelic era as defined in a letter to uh, to Humphrey uh, Osmond, that he was using mescaline, which of course came from peyote uh, and sometimes referred to as mescal, but that came on the scene really in 1891 with another Irish man called uh, James Mooney, who had gone to uh, and participated in a peyote ceremony with Quana Parker, the Comanche, and the, the uh, Quana Parker said bring these back to Washington and tell them that this is used in, in our religion. And he brought it back to Washington and he distributed that. And as a result of that, the plant was studied and it's, it, the constituent elements was isolated in 1897 in, in Berlin. It was also sent to another person who sent it on to William James, who took it and was ill. But it, from there, as a result of studies and uh, certain books, for example, Kluver, I think in 1928, the divine plant explains how this operates as an entheogen. But again, the history goes back to the native people. And there's a tendency to, to give the credit in some ways to, to other people. And similarly, 
we could look at the advent or, or bringing back of uh, cannabis or cannabis sativa from uh, from India. An Irish, another Irishman, actually, um, uh, William Brooks O'Shaughnessy, uh, was out there and he, he presented a paper in Bengal in 1839 about the medicinal use of cannabis as it has been used traditionally in Indian culture. And he brought it back and they began to sell it in tinctures uh, in London from that time. It was quite common before it was banned later on by the Medical Association. So we have this great this great uh, combination of things. Why I was particularly interested in it, because I taught intellectual property. And intellectual property is a battleground between traditional knowledge and contemporary knowledge. And there's a lot of struggles in relation to, to neem and, and the patentability of these subjects. Neem is a plant which is, or a tree which is, has been used for medicinal purposes in India and other countries for a long period of time. And because of that interest, I began to look at where this knowledge comes from and how we were kind of obscuring the origin of a lot of contemporary medicines and issues which are referred to as bioprospecting and biopiracy. Uh, so I hope that wasn't too long, Jeff, but that's, that's why my personal and professional interest came about. Now, you have an amazing uh, repertoire of knowledge. I'm really blown away by how much you are able to keep in, in, in your head. But uh, let's talk for a moment about the, the source of the indigenous knowledge, because my understanding is that the, the shamans, the native people who come up with these, uh, as you point out, almost impossible concoctions, such as the ayahuasca brew, uh, almost unanimous, unanimously report that the, the plants speak to them. That's right, yeah. And it, it's very, very, it would be very difficult to accept that for the Western mind if it wasn't for the fact that the evidence is there, that the combinatorial possibilities which explain how some of these things came about, uh, that is, it's difficult to comprehend. And it, so the evidence is there. And this is, this is a a factor which we find in mysticism that people come up with things that they couldn't have done otherwise or they say they can't have, have done. So they do say they talk to the plants. There's another way to look at it. If we look in, in Europe, for example, we had the doctrine of signatures, which was important for people like Jacob uh, Bohm and, and, and others. But this goes back to a very old uh, idea, which is there in the Judeo-Christian uh, theology and in, in most theologies. And the idea is that if we have a creator, well, then everything was created for us. And if we have a problem, well, then there is a solution for it. So if we take the idea of the doctrine of signatures, and a lot of people think it's daft, but um, for example, the idea that you, you look at something and it can tell you what it's good for, for med in medicinal context. So uh, I remember the, thinking about the walnuts, and the walnut, of course, uh, it looks like a skull on the brain if you if you regard it from from outside and then go inside, and actually it has been proven by science in recent years that there's there are things in walnuts which are good for your brain. So I mean it is a strange way. So in some senses, there is another idea that there are signs out there. Now I know you have talked in in various of your your conversations and in, in presence about the idea that it's a kind of hide and seek out there that the, the answers are there we, we, we where the universe plays a game of hide and seek with us i've interpreted it in a different way in that as i've talked about in relation to ideas of light that we're kind of led on a path if we're only willing to follow the the, the crumbs if we're only willing to follow the the breadcrumbs on the trail we will get to solutions but we have to kind of engage with things so yes the the, the, the shaman communicate in some way and in some way they are accessing a different realm of knowledge. And perhaps by going inwards, as all mystical traditions say, they can look in a different way. They can look in the depth and they can therefore enter into a different zone in the way as in quantum physics, when we get to a particularly small level, we get into a different level of interaction that we could not have anticipated. It's not that things get smaller, they behave in a different force. So perhaps the mystical, the mystical path enables us in that sense to uh, to achieve noetic uh, inspiration which is not available elsewhere and that's the cl classic argument that mystics make 
Yeah, I probably would be inclined to think that this is evidence that the whole universe itself is conscious, which is uh, a point of view that I don't think is recognized either in the scientific systems or in the legal systems. Uh, yes, that's a very way. Uh, that's a very good way of putting it. And of course, we have the Gaia hypothesis and Lovelock and that. But yes, in the sense, that's another point that uh, indigenous cultures believe that everything had spirits. We can look at it from an animistic perspective or a broader theological perspective. But there was a spirit in everything, and and this is not uh, solely an ancient idea. I mean, I, I would make the argument up to very recently, there was elements of indigenous culture surviving uh, in Ireland. And I, I talked to my my elderly aunt who's still alive in London, and, and, and she communicates about how she sees or how she feels the rocks talking to her. And now, now she's, she's a very spiritual woman in many senses, but it wasn't strange to have this idea uh, in Europe. Europe hasn't advanced everywhere in the way that people perceive so there are pockets of the indigenous cultures. The same in the Basque country, there are some very old traditions that, uh, that, that are there. So we have to be careful not to believe that we've jumped into a modern society and left everything, everything behind so, so, so quickly. Let's talk now about uh, some of your activities as an attorney representing the rights of indigenous people to own the knowledge that they've uh, obtained over centuries. I, I didn't uh, work directly in that context because I, want, I, I worked in the academic world, although I have worked in uh, countries like Lesotho and, and, and uh, Moldova, uh, where, where I have dealt with some of these issues. But my, uh, what I wanted to do was, through the academic world, to present arguments, which I have published at the top fifth star level of, of uh, research in, in these, uh, at an international level in this dimension. So what I tried to do was to present the arguments in relation to the nature of uh, indigenous knowledge in a way that could accord with the existing legal system. Uh, and so in that sense, and also, uh, I mean, I, I did travel to Canada and stayed in a reservation for a while to begin to get a sense of what life was like in relation to in some of these contemporary manifestations and how these plants and the idea of traditional ecological or environmental knowledge is utilized and relevant uh, still so uh, it was it was mainly in the presentation in in that effort and we can see for example that this is very very important if we look at uh, people like Vandana Shiva for example she is an example in the Indian context where she became aware of these issues and she led campaigns in relation to challenging the patentability of uh, extracts from neem and uh, in relation to uh, turmeric as well. And she's very, very aware. She calls it biopiracy bio uh, bio and, and bioprospecting. Uh, and, and she believes that there is a very deliberate policy from the West to extract indigenous knowledge in that sense. And, and she's right. Uh, so so uh, I, I agree with that. I think there has to be a reconciliation. Although when they won those cases, they won them under the existing law. So in, in some senses, the law could accommodate it by showing that actually there had been prior knowledge, that there had, they weren't new and obvious, the requirements for patentability. But uh, this the, the struggle in relation to indigenous knowledge and, and scientific knowledge and the apparatus around science, that kind of uh, science commercial corporatist uh, uh, connection is very, very important. And one of the contemporary manifestations of problems in that domain now is associated with traditional farming practices in India. And she emphasizes how there have been a horrendous amount of suicides by Indian farmers in, in the last a uh, few years, going back to the to the 90s. And the figures are horrendous, up to 10,000 a year, uh, some of the estimations, or, well, the, the, the reports. Uh, and that's associated with moving away from traditional land practices. Land practices which were showing, shown by colonial investigators to be good practices, that the people knew how to farm the land. And in fact, uh, she argues that the, some of the ideas 
in India were taken back to Europe and utilized in the organic uh, farming idea. And we see that people like Rudolf Steiner was interested in organic farming. So um, these are very, very important issues. And, and there, there is a, a conflict between the respect and recognition of traditional ecological knowledge, which we, we can think in different terms from, from scientific knowledge in a contemporary sense. So on one hand, we have an idea that we have knowledge which is uh, con- consistent with a, a holistic sense of the environment, which has a spiritual sense, which uh, has community practices around it and certain rituals and procedures, and is belonged and handed down through uh, by tradition within the community for the community's benefit. So it's less about owning in an individual context. And we have that idea, and it's proven success. Other examples of its success are in relation, if you look at the origin of scurvy and, and knowledge about uh, treatment of scurvy, for example, we find a connection back to uh, Native Americans and them helping sailors in Montreal uh, a, f- a few hundred years ago. So this, this uh, examples of its eff- efficacy and the superior knowledge of indigenous people uh, is there. But on the Western idea, and not just the Western idea, because we would have a same in a contemporary Oriental context. We, we, we can't just confine it to, to the, the West or say it's all about white people or something like that. that. That's too narrow. It's about a particular methodology. So if, if we conceive of the, that's the, the core scientific paradigm as being whether we describe it as Baconian or Cartesian or Newtonian, where it's associated with an idea of a clockwork mechanism of control, of mechanization, of industrialization, of use of machines, of the superiority of the machines, of utilizing those powers to squeeze things out of nature, to force the secrets out of nature, as Bacon might have said, the scientist. The idea that we have to torture nature to get the secrets out it's a it's a horrible kind of domination kind of idea which it includes an idea of domination about people uh, and which which creates a very very narrow focused focused idea and at the same time it conflicts and imposes directly uh, uh, opposition to the traditional environmental knowledge and as part of that process there seems to be a need to denigrate the traditional ecological knowledge, to believe that it doesn't exist, to believe that it's superstitious, to believe that there's no sense to it, to fail to recognize its holistic sense. Uh, and in that sense, if if Shiva and India can be described as an eco-feminist, I, I believe she's in the same tradition as in a European context, the pagan figures of Bridget, or the Christian figures of Bridget, for example, and yet that idea in the eco-feminist context that goes back to the goddess figure, which has been taken out because the the uh, the, the respect for the earth mother or the, the respect for resources, the respect for water, the conceptualization of these things as deeper integrated uh, forces, or a, as you have indicated, a living system, a living interactive system uh, that can't be reduced that can't be put under a microscope and, and explain. And we had a conversation with your nephew about the complexity of water and the molecular structure and how people think they know H2O, etc. But it's a lot more complex than that. And indigenous people understood and had greater respect for some of these things. It's self-evident, but we've lost some of that self-evident awareness. And if we want to solve some of the problems, we need to have respect and enlarge our own interaction with nature and not be taken away from it. I understand that the very term ecology suggests that everything is interconnected. And I know when I first was an undergraduate in college, the the word ecology was hardly ever spoken. It was biology. And we were thinking then of the separation of species and everything is different than everything else. But ecology as, as a Western science because I don't think that it's an indigenous term. I think it is a Western scientific term, but it does suggest an entirely different way of perceiving the world. Well, the the, the benefit of the Western scientific uh, approach is that it works because it classifies everything, going back to Linnaeus, 
we established a taxonomy and it was him that came up with names like cannabis sativa for example in relation to the, the hemp plant which is a crucial plant and then you classify then you begin to break down and then you begin to isolate and concentrate on and find things that work usually with the help of of getting information from what has worked already and then you say oh look what science has done uh, even though for example you've got a lot of hints but the the when you continue to break things down you you fail then to see the interrelationship between things so for example uh, there will be a difference when people begin to take some of these i know there's a lot of studies in relation to psilocybin and and some very very interesting possibilities from there but when we begin to concentrate the active ingredient as seen by chemists uh, and focus on one particular issue we fail to see that there may be two other active ingredients who operate in that context whose interrelationship is crucial for the way it interacts with the human body or brain and the, the there's a failure sometimes because of the identification and re reductive approach to see that interrelationship and sometimes things are more complex than immediate results uh, will, will lead us to so that idea of uh, extraction uh, exploitation explanation being the the, the, the particular genius of the, that method has limitations where we're dealing with complex phenomena that interact between uh, things and then when we're dealing with living phenomena and then when we have to consider quantum effects and that and when, when we they don't understand what consciousness is so these the great scientific method that has no idea what consciousness is that has uh this uh, taken away the idea of the spirit which is what is the crucial idea in traditional ecological knowledge and they haven't successfully replaced it yet then want us to believe that they have all the answers through their method whereas they may be leaving out the most important thing consciousness the the overarching idea of human consciousness animal consciousness and the consciousness of the universe if we go back to the the Vedas and the Upanishads and, and that wider interactive idea, or the Tao, as C.S. Lewis talked about. Many years ago, I interviewed Fritjof Capra, who is uh, the author of a book called The Tao of Physics, a very famous book. And then after that, he set up an organization called, if I remember correctly, the Elmwood Institute. And even though he himself was a theoretical physicist, uh, he argued that we should stop thinking of physics as being the bedrock of science, that actually, in, in his view, it should be by and I think by that he meant ecology, that if we understand that everything is interconnected with everything else, then we can uh, base our foundation of knowledge upon that. Well, yeah, the, the Tower of Physics would have been a book that was very influential for me and, and, and similar books in that context. So when you look at people like that, that, that bring an enlightened idea and uh, Rupert Sheldrake, of course, is another great example in, in that context. But see, what he's doing, it seems to me, is seeking to take an integrated, holistic approach, which allows for and has respect for biological function, but integrates it into a wider context, utilizing scientific methods, but uh, in a corresponding way, accepting the spiritual dimension to it. And therefore, uh, he is able and open to see it in, in a better way. So we don't have that exclusivity and the idea of the exclusivity of the scientific method, which is a characteristic of scientism, which is bad science and can lead to pseudoscience and bad results, for example. And uh, so, so certain biologists um, have, a, have an insight and they should have an insight. Or marine biologists, we can see that um, if that idea going back to Steinbeck and Ed Rickards and, and those books about looking at, at, at the, the animals and plants around, the log from the sea or Cortez, and uh, to, to look at the things around in order to understand the universe. And when one begins to have respect for the, uh, for the environment, for, for the creatures around, for the complexity, for one's own ignorance about these things, for the, uh, to have a degree of humility. And then when one begins to look at the range of indigenous traditions and the perennial philosophy, of course, is, is critical in this, 
we begin, or, or if we look to Taoism, of, of course, they observe nature very much and water and the observing of how water behaved was critical for a lot of their ideas. And the reason why these things work and we can extract uh, messages from them is because there's a certain truth from the behavior because we're made of the same things. So, yes, I, I agree with that stream. And I'd also put Wade Davis uh, in there as well. Uh, and there's other people I see in the context of mycology, I see Paul Stamets and other people that are talking about the significance of, of mushrooms and how, uh, and referring to the example of mushrooms to clean up pollution and how uh, other examples of where we have fungus growing in Chernobyl that can, that can consume radiation that offer great opportunities for us to find environmental uh, solutions. Although there is a bit, there's a line, I think, and uh, when I think about Terence McKenna, uh, and he was another great explorer, and Wade Davis was down in the Amazon at the time Terence McKenna went down there. So I'm, I'm open to all those ideas that the use of medicinal plants in a properly regulated context for people that are mature enough and in appropriate conditions to engage in that is good. But he put all his eggs in one basket. He He seemed to believe that the mushroom would solve everything. And I think that that's a wrong approach. And it's even wrong in terms of traditional knowledge because they suggest the need to have the holistic. You have to look at things holistically. Um, so there's a there's different emphasis that we, we can get. Uh, Wade Davis seems to have a greater holistic sense. He's very, very aware of the significance and the need for to respecting diversity in relation to cultural practices and different peoples. Which, which, is, which is important. So we have to come imbued with these knowledge uh, or the, these values, and in particular, uh, not to come with the arrogance that was behind anthropology in its early stages and in some contemporary context, where in many ways these were imperial servants who were going out to understand how the empire could be could exploit resources. I mean, that's really a lot of the history of, of, of some of these subjects. And even today, there is even that thread in relation to, or that nexus between the state, even the military-industrial com complex, and the study of consciousness that we can see. And John Lilly, for example, uh, who, who made great contributions, was in that milieu. So there is an overlap uh, uh, there as well. So, uh, But yes, th th those biologists can certainly uh, contribute because they have that humility and they have some recognition that we are spiritual beings, which I think is the most important. I do hear from viewers occasionally who are very concerned about the progress that we're making in areas like the scientific study of shamanism and consciousness because they're concerned that we still live in a uh, an industrial society that e even though there are these a very important fringe scientists uh, making progress that ultimately uh, their fear is that whatever progress is made, let's say remote view Viewing, as an example, it will end up coming into the service of a militaristic industrial culture, and that would be a bad thing. Uh, I, I, I share that fear, Jeff. Uh, the, the, I share that fear uh, to a large extent. And it's very, very interesting. Uh, not, not totally, but I mean, I think there are solutions, but one must be careful because we want balance here. So if, if, if you think... Uh, the, the the term psychedelic was used in a letter from Osmond to Huxley, to Huxley in '57. So we have the the term psychedelic coming into popular use. We also had the term artificial intelligence coming in through through John McCarthy and and uh, in those discussions uh, we talked about before. Uh, and also uh, the other Huxley, uh, Julian Huxley in 1957 defined the term transhumanism. So it's quite remarkable that in 1956 to 1957, we had this, like the fruit body of a mycelium that's underneath perhaps, uh, which suggests a link between some of the things we've talked about in the transhumanist video and some of the evolution in relation to psychedelics. Now remember, if we think about Huxley, Huxley writes the perennial philosophy apparently to me as a uh, as a combating 
the kind of imperial view, the scientific view that he knew from, from London. And he, he, that was combating that strand for him. And he writes Brave New World, and we have drugs being used, and that's Soma, uh, uh, Brave New World. And then, of course, he has the island. In the island, they, they set up the paradise, but it fails in the end. And Huxley warned uh, that these things could be used to enslave us. And also, he, in, in Heaven and Hell, he kind of dismisses, after he has his, his experiences with mescaline, that he, he then says, well, that this is, this is uh, a short, not a shortcut, the best method of obtaining mystical experience. And he seems to dismiss all the other practices which come to it, in a, in a way. I think he is a bit dismissive uh, in, in, in that essay. Uh, and I, I think that's a mistake. And, but one has to remember about Huxley that Huxley was unable to, as he said himself, to engage the inner eye. He, he had difficulty with hypnagogic imagery. And so there are certain people that need or, or, or to have their eyes open by, by, by other means. But it's a mistake then to believe that that process or that mystical event is the spiritual event or its spiritual evolution. I think there's a conflation there. Uh, so one has to be careful in that sense. And there is a certain concern that if we have a medicalization of the hallucinogenic, the enteogenics, the, 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 the drugs that can invoke an experience of God, that they will be perfect tools for to, to maintain that servitude, to make us fall in love with our servitude. When we're locked up at home in the human zoo, that we can take these drugs and feel happy that we're wider. And uh, McKenna wrote an essay about uh, psychedelics in the age of, of the intelligent machines. And him and Timothy Leary seem to be very, very open towards this new, the new age of, of technology, as I am myself, but... They were embracing it in a way, for me, which suggested an opening to transhumanism. The idea that, well, well if we, our, our minds can escape from all this, well, then this uh, technology is merely another way to get into some psychedelic uh, novel uh, in, environment. And in that, for me, they're engaging in a mental exercise and not a spiritual exercise. So I think one has to be careful. I have respect for the people who have associations with the indigenous people in North America and South America and elsewhere, who have connections with them and who follow and have respect for, for their use and who, who understand, or some of the, the people who are licensed sh uh, shaman in, in various places in the United States, for example, where they can perform and use herbal medicines, but they're doing it in a respectful way. That's a different game than buying over the counter or getting your shot uh, as part of a, a, an idea to pacify you. So there, there is a, a tension there that we have to be, be careful about. And I think Terence McKenna probably recognized in some of his interviews that he overestimated the power of the 60s revolution. And he didn't, the, the, the 70s kind of reaction to it show that they, they hadn't moved so far in many senses. Now, you spent some time living on an Indian reservation in Canada. If I recall correctly, it was a Cree uh, reservation. What did you learn there from live, living with these people? I, I only went out for, for a short time because I, I had done a few lectures uh, in Canada, and I was meeting the native people, and I, I was always I always felt an affinity in that sense because... The, the struggle in Ireland over a few hundred years mirrors the struggle that in, in, indigenous uh, people had in the United States. So my disposition was always to understand, and, and I had particular interests or particular affinities which arose in relation to, say, uh, the Lakota Sioux, uh, and very interested in figures like Red Cloud and their prophecies of the seventh generation and the recurrent. But I stayed with the, uh, the Ojibwe or the Chippewa people. Only for a short time, I went back to stay on a reservation uh, to, to, to get a sense of, uh, with, a, with a friend I had made, to get a sense of uh, what, what the experience was like. Uh, and it was, uh, th there's a lot of difficulties, a lot of uh, socioeconomic difficulties 
because of uh, genuine embedded discrimination, and now this is controversial because people in Canada say, no, that's, that's not true, but uh, if you look at the, the structural context, there's a lot of difficulties, and there still are difficulties. Um, but the so, but it was a great experience for me. From the first time I began, I gave some talks over there. I realized that the Native American people have a profound sense of lived spirituality in a contemporary sense. It's not historic. It's very, very real. Uh, when I arrived up for the first time, I was giving a talk. Someone said, "I had a dream about you last night." They never met me, and you know, I believe, I believe them. And other people were telling me about their dreams, and they were telling me about various things about how they saw the world. And it, it, so it's, it is a real heritage that they have preserved, not just for them, but for us. So in relation to, uh, there's a film called Thunderheart, which is, uh, which is based on the uh, Pine Ridge uh, Reservation. And, and, and that was recommended to me by one of the Native Americans. And you can see some of the same issues, the socioeconomic issues and the difficulties. Um, so, but the point, so, so, so the point that emerged from me was despite those socioeconomic issues, their spiritual ri richness is very, very deep. The knowledge of the environment is very, very deep. Now, the prophecies uh, from various, uh, various Native American leaders are that there would be an efflorescence of the Native American people about now, if you like. That, 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 that's my interpretation. So they anticipated that it would take a while to recover. And there is, there is evidence uh, of an efflorescence of, of indigenous people who operate in, in both worlds. And we see that in, in Australia as well. And there have been some significant legal cases, like the Mabo case, which I've written about in Australia, which is a revolutionary legal decision. And most people won't know about that. But it really changed and had great significance for uh, in, in indigenous people. Uh, so what I learned was humility, uh, respect for the culture, um, I'm meant to, it's going to be difficult, but I'm meant to go to, to Pine Ridge to, to meet the, the, the Lakota Sioux, uh, as you, you know, in, in the summer. Uh, and I'm learning a lot in relation to what they're doing and their hopes. And I think that the, the Sioux in particular uh, are doing some very interesting things. And we see, again, interests in issues such as hemp, and the, the use of industrial hemp and the exploration of how these plants can be used in, in a contemporary context. And, and of course, when we're talking about these issues, we also have to remember the coca leaf in, in South America and the way that the extract from the coca leaf, although that's used for medicinal purposes and, and, and has a little bad effects, when it's taken in an industrial context, it can be used as a tool for control and it has defined the criminal justice system or some of these drugs um, uh, in the United States and the, the criminalization through that technocratic system of plants which in their original form, if they're taken in their original form, don't have the same nasty consequences that an industrialized productive uh, uh, context happen and the same thing if we look at the poppy again the poppy which is traditional medicine uses of course was behind the uh, the great the opium wars with britain and, and china and great international uh, struggles over a plant which if utilized in a traditional context could provide benefits that are, are different so we again that's part of not just the scientific method or the scientism, but the interaction of ideas of corporatism and ideas of superiority, which make a mess of certain gifts to us, and which, if we have a context of decriminalization and sensible use of these things, they can be reintegrated, perhaps, or approached in a different way. And it's, it's terrible that so many people in prison for possession of small amounts of, of, of drugs. I mean, that, that's the thing that, that history is not going to be kind uh, on people for or on generations for how they have punished people for possession of small amounts of, 
of these substances. Well, I know I've been to Peru where uh, coca tea, based on the coca leaf, is the national drink. You can uh, drink coca tea. It's uh, offered usually for free in every hotel lobby. Uh, and I know the native Quechua Indians of Peru chew on the coca leaf. It helps them um, to live in the very high altitudes of the Andes Mountains and uh, uh, to climb long distances. It's, it's quite safe for them there, uh, whereas as crack cocaine in the U.S. is is, is abused terribly, but I, it seems to me that if there is an efflorescence, as you say, of indigenous culture, that we've got to come to terms with uh, what has in the United States, I remember back in the 1960s, was called the, the Trail of Broken Treaties, because uh, in the United States, and I suspect even in Canada and in uh, South America, every time a treaty was made with indigenous peoples, it was broken. And hundreds of times over, over the uh, decades, over the centuries. And uh, this is an injustice that has survived for, for so long. I would think a, as a lawyer, uh, it's overwhelming uh, how, how one can even begin to correct the enormous abuses of indigenous people that, that have occurred over the centuries. Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, totally. I mean, there's... For example, there's the, the Leonard. I, I did a painting recently in relation to Leonard Peltier, uh, who has been in prison for a long time, and there's a lot of international discontent uh, about that uh, and anger. And there are there are certain examples that that could be used where, where by his freedom, for example, that would send out messages. But uh, apart from that, we can do it on a simpler level. For example. The, the Native American church uh, utilized uh, peyote, and, and that was going back to the experience of, of, of Quana Parker and the Comanches and, and James Mooney that we talked about, 1891, around that period, which corresponded also with the ghost dance phase, and, and Mooney had looked at that. There's, there's an interesting relationship uh, there. But they say, for example, I think in 2019, the uh, Native Americans said that they don't want peyote to be descheduled uh, because or, or it would it would affect them. The supply of it as, is under pressure already. So I think in examples like that, simple examples, we, we should we should say immediately yes, and we respect that, and we're not going to treat it in the same way. Whatever other responses. So there are very very simple things in relation to the production of hemp, and, and uh, th th there has been a long struggle in relation to that. We should facilitate the desires of what are su supposedly independent peoples uh, and not treat them like, like, like children in that context. Uh, so there are little things that, that, that we can do to respect those traditions, to try and start off, and listening is a key. Um, so, so, so we have to listen in relation to what we, th or what, what, they think is, is the optimum thing and to have great respect for that. And when we do begin to, to listen, we can begin to then work on the bigger issues. We can begin to, to hear what the issues are and to begin to work on them. Now, this is in our own interest. So, so for, from the Western perspective, it's in the interest of the West because their conception is superior conception in relation to the, the the environment it's closer to the earth in many ways people look to the great civilizations of egypt for example the pyramids etc but we're talking about a very dominant uh, imperial slave society which uh, its spirituality developed into a kind of as manly hall talked about a kind of black magic at the top in certain senses which moved away from the more perennial hermetic philosophy which i think is the philosophy which is more consistent with the with the perennial philosophy around the world uh, and in some ways there will be or there has to be a movement away from that high octane uh, consumerist mechanized uh, idea and in that sense we have to refer to with respect and learn from people who also have their religions. It's the same in Africa. We don't talk about religions in Africa, but there are native 
religions in Africa. There's no other way to describe them. Africa is, is forgotten about in this context. And even in the same, uh, in the context of, of voodoo and that, people have cinematic ideas of what it is and they don't respect that there are deep uh, theological ideas behind these things. So it, it behoves us to look at to look at uh, the different cultures with respect because our culture is is on the wrong road in relation to its monocultural monotechnical uh, uh, approach in the, in the sense that we talked about in relation to Lewis Mumford so the idea that we have different perspectives that we can learn different ways uh, that we can utilize nature as well to help us solve the problems that we can bring in the best for example, mycologists, whatever, that are respectful, like Stamets, for example, who 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 understand these things or, or have respect for people like Capra and, and Sheldrake and others who can give us a wider idea uh, and integrate a, a wider idea uh, of spirituality uh, into the picture. I think that that will be will be useful for us too. But listening, listening and listening to the needs and working from there and forgetting about now one thing i will say that i think it's a mistake for advocates uh of the of the native americans to have a unified view of everyone outside the things because for example coming from an irish context uh if i look at the place where my mother was born it was a pile of rocks really with attached roof that could have been it was medieval in many senses so they came from a a, a situation of uh, colonization as well so they weren't the colonizers in, in that sense. So there are more shared interests. I would argue that there's greater shared interests than uh, people imagine. And this is a time where we can create those bridges of meaning where people can have, can mutually learn with respect and with humility and without judgment. And that the institutions that have been destructive or the elements in the institutions, um, of, of uh, not Christianity uh, as a, a theology, but the way Christianity was utilized in certain uh, contexts with instruments of power, with imperial structures of power, that we can uh, reapproach those things, look at them again with an open heart and an open mind. The same as I, I think that if we take James Mooney, he seemed to have a sympathetic view and he also was interested. His, his father had come from Ireland in the famine. He was very uh, it was very involved in the struggle in Ireland for land reform again, same issue as we have in relation to India, and very aware. And in fact, I believe that when Douglas Hyde came to America, he came to the White House, he brought along with him Seamus O'Maney, who was James, James uh, uh, Mooney, with him because th th they had a connection. So th there are shared interests that we have to cultivate with respect and with, with dignity and without condemning people. Uh, on both sides, because that doesn't help. We, we, we have to look to the future, derive the knowledge, derive the inspiration from the uh, the people that are there, and listen and, and have respect for for, for the, the contemporary manifestations of the traditions. Well, interestingly, today is March 1st when we're recording this conversation. And today I released a video interview with Jürgen Kramer. He is the co-author of a book called Ethno-Autobiography. And he makes an interesting point that many Westerners, instead of going to Indian reservations to understand shamanism there, if we look at our own traditions, if we go back far enough, we all come from indigenous cultures. And uh, he recommends that that we find the uh, indigenous culture in our own background. There's a, there's a big problem here, Jeff, and, and this is from a, an Irish context. If I go back, if I look at the time of grandparents and I look at the, the census, you see that they're all bilingual, for example, they had Irish. Uh, if I go back to my father's generation, my my uncle, they, they were great lovers of the Irish language. And my uncle in particular, he was a politician, but he was a teacher and uh, into drama and that, but he had a great love of the Irish language. And he used to, he was explaining to me certain idioms and certain words and concepts that never came into English, uh, very unusual, that see the different, the world in a different way. And in there, there are certain ideas that are more oblique, they're less direct. The Swedish Germanic languages, for example, are very direct. But in this 
uh, in this uh, language, an ancient language, uh, we have a fantastic amount of poetry that was only really rediscovered in the 19th century because it wasn't hadn't been available. Uh, the people spoke it, but and within that there was a great degree of myths and that. And that's that's what people like Yeats and and Russell were. We're, we're tapping into, and that was part of what was called the Celtic Twilight, the late 19th century. And that began to feed back uh, in, into a broader uh, English-speaking culture. But it was there, uh, and in that, there are great stories. There are stories about how, for example, the fiddle players took the tunes from the air. They heard the tunes, the fairy tunes on the air, how they may have got tunes from the whales but through upturned boats, how they were more involved with the, the environment, how they had a great idea of the other world. And it's all in the languages. And all these all these things that people think came up in California about uh, UFOs and shape-shifting and this, that and the other, we can see it in the ancient culture. It's all there. Now, the problem is that that's uh, being destroyed. It's disappearing, in my view. It's disappearing because there has been an idea that all that stuff is, is superstition. All that thing is not really part of the modern age, despite whatever claims are made for it, as, as, as a living, real uh, force. It, 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 it's, it's very much demoralized, and an awful lot is going to be lost. There are cultures, Wade Davis makes this point, there are languages being lost every day now because of this lack of, of, of diversity and lack of cultural diversity. And there's also a problem in relation to the uh, urban intelligentsia, that there has been a very strong tradition. We can see this in both the left and the right of a kind of uh, hatred of the, of the countryside, that everything in the countryside, we see it in Irish literature, was kind of backward. They were always complaining about things. They were, uh, and, and that's also part of that materialist paradigm that, that underpins uh, certain strength, both on, on, on the neoliberal strand and the corporate strand, and also in, uh, we can see it in, in, in Trotsky and, and, and in Marx as well, that there was a, or a Lenin, and we can see the, uh, the, the attitudes in relation to people on the land. So there, there is this, because it was seen to be, the optimum was an urban working culture with machines, which is part of their machine mentality. So there are deep forces. I, I, I believe that it will be very, very difficult to preserve, both in Ireland and in Scotland, because it, it's it's a very similar. I, I can understand uh, Scots Gaelic, uh, not fantastically, but it's a very close, uh, close language. And there, there is great wisdom, even in the even in Scots English as Scots dialect. It's a beautiful language that that, that has been that's dying out. It really is beautiful when you look at some of the terms. And there's, there's a great diversity which which is being lost. So uh, I, I I see myself as an indigenous people, an indigenous person in some senses, you know, because I had access to to the uh, the culture that was there. I I have respect for that tradition. I picked up elements of it from 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 the Irish culture. My family, as far as I can see, were were in that space for thousands of years. Uh, but now the idea is that. Now I'm all in favour of a, I'm cosmopolitan. I'm not. It's not an argument about not having different groups or whatever. But it's an idea of respecting people that have been in a particular place. Now I've talked to some of my my younger friends here who are some more left wing or anarchist, whatever, who say, uh, but we can't have a connection between blood and soil because they associate that with the narrative of Nazi Germany and all that. But it's a mistake. We can't respect indigenous people if we don't understand that that connection with the soil and with land is very, very important because they treat it as a living being. They understand how it works. And if you look at some of the solutions, there are very interesting books being written about soil and about how we can use soil in a more productive way. Uh, to uh, uh, capture carbon and things like that, to, to utilize in a way which will solve some of the problems, which can solve some of the problems very, very quickly. And what I fear is that the scientists are going to take control of the solutions. And what the scientists, for me, uh, who are not the respectful scientists, who are not, who don't have the holistic view, they're like gamblers at a casino in, in Monte Carlo who will say, oh, we'll have another bet, another spin of the wheel, and we'll win this one. So they'll deny 
their influence in creating the conditions that led to the destruction of the environment. And then they'll say, well, let's have this solution. Now we can control the weather. I read about they're trying this in China. Well, that doesn't seem like a, a great solution to me or a great, a great idea. They don't care about how much uh, junk is put up in, uh, in the sky. And we will have technocratic solutions based on technocratic analysis where they don't have necessarily a great sense of the interaction. I'd like to see a greater and wiser involvement of native peoples in that and a greater respect for solutions that are ecological and a, a greater use of nature in a sensitive way to solve some of these problems as opposed to saying that it, it, it's a problem that we can we can solve by more science, by more quantitative methods, by more machines, by more nanotechnology, by more problems that create a problem elsewhere. So. Well, that's very eloquently put. Uh, when you talk about dead languages and dead cultures, uh, I'm reminded of Carl Jung's explorations into the you know, what he called the collective unconscious, which he thought of as the world of the dead. It's as if these things never really die. They still exist within us. And ultimately, in order to address the imbalances in our culture, it, it seems we have to go within. We have to find those parts of our own soul that we have lost because uh, they're still there deeply buried within our own consciousness. They certainly are. And as you have emphasized, uh, Jeff, many times is that we are all inheritors of, of these cultures. It doesn't mean that we go in and rob their traditional plants, but it means that we have access if we want to listen to the wisdom to the ideas and what what different languages can do is to provide us with different perspectives to look a bit differently to approach it in a different in a different way and uh, but there is no question unfortunately that they if we don't have a greater awareness of the need to have biological diversity and diversity within the ethnosphere among people to respect the diversity uh, to have a cosmopolitan approach, not to be so condemnatory, to celebrate other people's culture and our own culture, where, whatever that is, uh, and also not to treat one culture as different, uh, not to say that, uh, well, you were a privileged culture in the past, although they wouldn't have recognized that as privileged in Ireland if you told them they were privileged, Jeff, Jeff when I talked to the people and what they went through in the west of Ireland uh, and surviving famine and that, and, you know, a million people killed and Mayo was the worst pl uh, pl place for deaths in, in, in the west of Ireland, with emigration, whatever. They wouldn't have regarded it as a very privileged position or what happened afterwards with the various wars of independence, etc. We're not going into that, but the point is that Every people ha ha has something, has suffered something, have, has experienced something, uh, have done damage to other people. Uh, but we're at a point where we have to transcend those things. And we can only, we transcend things by not abandoning everything, by looking again, by reinterpreting, by moving on, by allowing them to live in different contexts, by having respect for things which are different, by not standardizing everything. Standardization is a killer in many senses. Once we, be, once we fail to see that diversity and complexity of a living system, we lose a lot. And I, there's something in the modern manifestations of the scientific method, uh, and again, it's not about science, but it's about the application, uh, combined with the corporatist uh, 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 approach and the uh, materialist philosophy behind that, without any recognition and with disrespect for religion or spirituality, which will lead to disastrous results. There's no question. In my view, it cannot lead to, to, to uh, good results. It, it might be okay if you have resolved, like Bernal talked about, to leave the planet, as a lot of people talk about, uh, uh, to, uh, as they seem to be, uh, to say, well, it's a lost cause, so it doesn't matter what we do. But that makes me suspicious about how really, how much they really want to solve the problems that need to be solved. 
Well, James Tunney, once again, a very stimulating, uh, brilliant conversation. I know we, as always, just seem to be scratching the surface, but hopefully we'll come back to this topic uh, again and again in the future because there's always so much more to say. Uh, it's been a joy to be with you, my friend. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. And the last point, uh, I, I was thinking, talking about plants, because of course, when we're talking about plants, a lot of spiritual traditions, esoteric traditions are based on the tree of life. For example, the tree is always there. Conceptions, even scientific perspectives mapping, they have trees, and although that may, may misrepresent things. And I was thinking about your roots of consciousness, Jeff, and, and how, how innovative that was in its time and how you anticipated the central issue of, of our time. And I'm hoping that through your your work now that uh, and gathering your ideas uh, and benefiting from your reflections on the PK man and those forces and all the people that you've talked about, that what we're going to get from you is the efflorescence of consciousness, the, 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 the development of your perspective, which draws together your perceptions, which builds on your work and which which will be useful for humanity going forward and i think uh, i look forward to see uh to see you i hope you are able to or get the chance to to draw them together for the benefit of us because i think it will be very very useful well thank you james and for those of you listening or watching thank you for being with us Thank you.